Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope. Never Ever Give Up Hope is a show about people who have done just that. They have gone through incredible circumstances and never gave up no matter what. My guests have survived incredible circumstances and as a result, they each and every one of them have a passion to help others who may be going through something similar. And that's what I appreciate about my guests is that they don't just keep that to themselves. They want to share their story. They want to share where they have been. They want to share what they have overcome because you never know who's out there listening whether it's on TV or radio or in a book or any number of venues. People need to hear that message, and it feels hopeless to many. But there is hope, and each one of us needs to find that thread sometimes, just that thread of hope that we can hang on to. That's sometimes all we need, and that's sometimes all we have. I've had guests who have had to overcome extreme poverty. And they didn't give up and they became multimillionaires. I've had guests who have had to overcome extreme abuse in many different forms or serious depression or disease. And now they're living free from fear and pain. So much of it is attitude. And when you're really going through some really rough times, it's not easy to have the right attitude. My guests offer tips and helps and encouragement and hope and strength to those who need to hear it. And we're, they also are great storytellers, so I'm always excited to have each one with me on my show. Each and every one of them is special. They are fighters and they are winners. They are great company. They're a company you want around you to encourage you, to uplift you with their stories. Never Ever Give Up Hope is now heard in over 140 countries, and that shows that no matter where you are on this globe, there are people who need to hear these stories, and they will encourage you, and if you know someone that needs to hear it, please pass it on. I appreciate your reviews, your comments, and your encouragement with the feedback that you send. Thank you so much. With me today... I have Rebecca Faye Smith Galli. She is an author and a columnist who writes about love, loss, and healing. Now, sometimes that sounds like a huge subject and that a lot of people write about that, and they do. And a lot of them have incredible stories. But the story you are about to hear today is one that is going to make you cry. It is going to touch your heart. And it also is going to encourage you to know that no matter what you go through, 
you can not only survive, but thrive and rise above it. And that's the kind of person that Becky is. When you hear her story, it's unbelievable, unimaginable, and yet there's a happy ending. She is a survivor. She has had significant losses, which include her 17-year-old brother's death, her son's degenerative disease and subsequent death, her daughter's autism, her divorce, and then nine days later, her paralysis from transverse myelitis, which she will explain. It is a rare spinal cord inflammation that began as the flu and left her paralyzed. Welcome, Becky. Good to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to hear your story, Becky. You have so much to share. So let's get started. Let's start with your childhood. Now, compared to most people, your childhood was close to perfect. It was the, uh, I'm imagining by, by reading what you shared with me, that it was the white picket fence, perfect childhood, growing up in a strong family, and what then something happened. Tell us about what happened. Well, as you mentioned, it was pretty much perfect. Um, stay-at-home mom, pastor father. Uh, the five of us were very tight family. My, uh, I was the oldest, my middle brother, and then my younger sister. Uh, we were closely knit, and we loved life. But when I was 20, um, Forrest, my 17-year-old brother, uh, was in a water skiing accident, and he died. And I think that of all the things I experienced was probably the most difficult just because what does a 20-year-old really know about loss? You know, you've got the world by the tail at that that age and you're looking forward to your dreams and your plans. So that was very difficult, very difficult. Um, But our family got through it. Uh, I write about in the book how it really shattered us because we we handled our grief so differently. Mm. But uh, we kept we kept moving, and um, I went on to have my own plans and dreams at school. Uh, married the man of my dreams and the career of my dreams with IBM, and had four children just like we had planned. Then life intervened again, <laughs> and it, we didn't exactly have the the children that we had hoped, and the marriage didn't last as we had hoped. As I've learned time and time again. You just got to keep going. You've got to find something to look forward to and a hope that you can that can be sustained. Now, I made a list there of of some of the things that you went through, and usually when we, you know, when we list things like that, there's also a lot of side stories. Daughter's autism. That, for example, that there, there's a lot of stuff that happens around that. There's the uh, the diagnosis, the the care that's needed, counseling that's needed, and on and on, along with your divorce and everything else. It's not a matter of just this is what happened. It's right. this is what happened and all the things that went around. And that's what you share in your book is you share, you know, the emotions that are around that, the the struggles, the victories the emotions because there is a lot. So that's what I really want to gear into today is what were you 
feeling during all this? Because you must have come to a place in your life where you said, why? Why is this happening to me? Now, how did you deal with those specific thoughts of why when that happened? I got angry. (laughs) Okay. I I think um, that's one of the things and one of the stories that I tell about in the book is that uh, in our family, we had this uh, this black chair philosophy where um, I think I was about 10 or 12 years old and I went in uh, with my younger siblings to see mom and dad and we're like, you know, mom, dad, who do we tell off when we get angry about something? And, and um, they kind of humored us and dad made this big deal out of, okay, anytime I'm sitting in this black chair, you can say anything you want to me. <laughs> And uh, I'm not promising I won't get angry, but I won't punish you. Ah. So that fostered this whole childhood of when you're upset, you had a safe place to talk about. Wonderful. It. And you could vent and you and you knew you wouldn't get punished. It would be kind of a little healthy discussion about it. So um, it was really interesting when my brother died. <laughs> My pastor father, in front of uh, interns in the hospital and in front of pastors that were there to support him, put God in the black chair and oh. was very angry at God for what he had, that he had taken uh-huh, uh-huh. my brother. And um, so as a 20-year-old, I witnessed this um, honest anger about the injustice of what has happened and I think I saw my dad struggle I saw him survive um and I didn't even know what I was learning at the time you just right watch it and it's like this tape recording and it's down so deep that you don't even know it's there until all of a sudden you know uh my my son has seizures and it's like, what do you do? And like, yeah, I'm angry, but you get through it, you know, and it, it becomes a resource you don't even realize you have. But yes, I did ask why a lot. I got angry a lot, but I also um, didn't get stuck in it. And I think that was the key thing is that, you know, you can get angry and isolate. And I think that's a real danger because we feel like nobody else understands, you know, why what's really happened and we have this anger when we tend to isolate and pout and feel sorry for ourselves and but uh i've i've really learned that you can't stay there long and it's it's really a discipline it's a, an yes yes to, to get out and recognize okay and and actually my sister and i would do this we would Say, okay, I'm going to go in a pity pool. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to, uh, for an hour, I'm really going to feel right. sorry for myself, but I, I want to make sure that, that, you know, in an hour, I'm going to be okay, but I, I just need to cry. I need to be sad about this. I need to mourn this. And so, but if you kind of, if you can manage it instead of it manage you, I think um, it, it, it just is a healthier way to go about it because we can't ignore the anger or the hurt or the questions. Um, and it was one of the things I quote, you know, my dad had all these wonderful quotes um, and it, that really, if we can live life with the questions, um, then that really 
will set us up on a on a healthy um, t- trajectory and give up trying to find the answers because there's a lot of energy spent around <laughs> where's the answer where's the answer and it's like you know what put that on the shelf you are not going to answer that one not not today maybe in the future maybe not for a long time but it's sucking up your energy that's worrying right. about it that's right what you said about pity party i totally agree often in my life when i was going through a lot of different things that <laughs> You know, you want to throw yourself a pity party, and I did, and I always say nobody showed up. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is what you just said. You don't want anybody to show up because you're not the kind of person that wanted the pity from others. You just Mm -hmm. had to have feel sorry for yourself, get the tears out, put things in perspective, change your focus, and then move forward. And that's what you did. So you're not the type of person that goes around with this martyr attitude, no matter how bad things are going, because you know that you're gaining strength from wherever you are needing to gain it from, which is, in your case, where? Faith and family. You know, I, I think that's um, really where I get the strength. And, and in community and just nurturing community. I don't think we're meant to be alone. I think we're meant to connect to other people and learn from each other. Family's really important to me. I, I, I don't have the family that I had envisioned, but I still have what I consider a very strong family. And it's that too. It takes it takes work. It's just like friendships, you know, they just don't happen. You have to carve out time for lunches and coffee and remember birthdays. And the same way goes with your my faith and my, it, it's, it's all effort, but it's just proven to be such a resource and a way uh, some I can have confidence that um, I can get through it I may not know how but I'm 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 prepared with the effort so the effort is worth it because you're for whatever happens I, I, I'm not wanting anything else to happen that's for sure I, I've had, I had enough I've yelled uncle quite a few times and God's not listening apparently so we you know we just we just keep moving keep strong by keeping others involved in our lives and growing ourselves, you know, grow. We have to grow through it. That's right. Let's back up a little bit and talk about some of the things that you did go through. Now, you mentioned your brother's death. Talk about your son now, please. Would you share what happened there? Well, Matthew was a beautiful, healthy boy. And when he was three months old, um, I was awakened in the middle of the night with these strange sounds coming from the baby monitor and um when i went in to check on him he was stiff and he was gurgling and um i picked him up and he just was kind of frozen in this superman posture and um when i turned him over to look at his face his eyes were fixed in this wide-eyed stare and he was um he was drooling so joe and i you know we we all, my daughter was th- uh, two and a half at the time, so my husband and I grabbed our daughter and went down to the emergency room, and of course, by the time we got there, he was fine. They told us it was a night terror, oh, my which I'd word. never heard of. It happened again a few months, uh, maybe it's like a couple months later, and this time, <laughs> I don't know what possessed me, but I decided I was going to videotape it. So, oh, okay. Very very quickly, I just, you know, videoed it and then 
We went down to the hospital. The same thing happened. He was fine by the time we got there. Another night terror. I kept pressing the ER doc because that just didn't make sense to me that, you know. Yes. And this was before the internet, before you could Uh Uh Google anything or YouTube or any of that stuff. So we were just really kind of encyclopedic back in those days. We, um, when I pressed him, he goes, well, you could always see a pediatric neurologist. I'm like, what in the world is that? But I booked the appointment and, um, so I, I brought Matthew and I brought a portable television with me. <laughs> and the Smart video girl. camera. Yes. <laughs> cause, uh... cause I could, I, you know, I could not figure out how to get the tape out of the camera into the thing. And so it's just easier to bring the camera and the TV. And that receptionist looked at me like I was from Pluto. But no kidding. Get in there and, and Matthew's, you know, goo, he's fine. You know, he's happy, healthy little baby. And so I put the camera on and the television lights up. And there's Matthew's night terror. And the doctor says, that's a seizure. Oh. I'm like, a what? And so I just, our family was so far removed from disability or from all of those things. I'd never really, I didn't know much about epilepsy or seizures or, so anyway, that began an 18 month process of trying to control the medications and, and we did for a while and, and, uh, he lived until he was 15, but he had, he never really, he had something else going on. We're never sure what that is. It was one of the most maddening letters I ever got was from the neurologist that said, you know, his class, he had epilepsy, he had cerebral palsy. That's what they, um, you know, when you're just broad classifications. Uh-huh. And the last at the time was, um, call it intellectual disability now, but at the time it was mental retardation severely. And then the last diagnosis was an undiagnosed disease of the central nervous system. Well, that's the problem. I've got some idiot doctor that can't diagnose things. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've got to go. I'm in Baltimore. I went to Hopkins. I went to Maryland, and nobody could diagnose it. But it was degenerative, so he never was able to sit. He was tube-fed. Uh, he seized daily. You know, it was a very tough, tough time for our family, and... We wound up finding a, a, he was in a pediatric hospital for a while, which was what was kind of protocol those days to, for, because his seizures were so intense and required that kind of medical intervention. But that was very difficult, very difficult on our, our marriage, our family, um, just because nobody had ever seen it before. It was just so uh, unique. So that, that's the Matthew story. He was a sweet little one, um, sweet little one. How did your uh, his siblings deal with that? Brittany was two and a half, and that was that was kind of my first uh, foray into the psychiatric the, the therapy, psychiatric ther- with therapy for for our family because she saw Matthew seize, and you know I had to learn how to give him medication, how to do CPR. She would watch him seize, and you know and. I would just say Matthew's having a seizure. So I try to explain as best I could. And and I went into therapy because I was parenting not only a kid with seizures, but a normal two-and-a-half-year-old little girl. And and then, of course, the marriage dynamic, that was all changing too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the most striking thing was I observed Brittany playing with another friend, and they were playing um, mommies. 
and they both had babies. And I said, well, we, and Brittany's like, now we have to have girl babies because boy babies have seizures. So she had kind of generalized that. And when I talked to the psychologist about it, she said, you know, Becky, that's magical thinking. You know, Brittany is trying to make sense of her world. Yes, yes. She did not have seizures, so it must just be little boys that right. do. And Brittany started going to therapy once a week. <laughs> so, but, you know, you just, it's just ripples, you know. It just affects one thing and it affects the other. That's and, right. You Absolutely. know, I, and to be honest, and I talk about this in the book, I thought I was being a good mom and I might have been being a really good mom, but I'm not so sure I was a great wife because I threw everything into Matthew and, you know, you just looking back, you're not sure how you just do the best you can. Right. The truth. You and know. ultimately your marriage ended, right? Yes. Yes. We had, you know, after Matthew was born, we had Madison who had the autism. And then even when Peter, our youngest, was he was born, he had, you'll love this, he had the very, uh, another rare blood disorder called alloimmune thrombocytopenia. Oh, my word. And so he was medically fragile for his um uh, first 14 days of life, he was in the NICU. So I remember as, you know, you, you write the book and you go through these cohorts yes, and, yes. and editors and I'm like, why in the world do you keep having kids back here? It's like <laughs> the, the timing was just exactly. such that, you know, they told us Matthew's situation was unique and a fluke. And so we, we had Madison and then Madison, you know, presented with the autism, but she didn't present with the autism until we were already pregnant with Peter. So uh, it was like we were uh-huh. not being irresponsible. Uh-huh. We right. did all that we possibly could to predict things and they were all negative. <laughs> and this, you know, and then when the paralysis hits, my kids are three, four, six, and nine. Nine days after my divorce is final, that's when the paralysis hits. It was just, so you have to write a book about that, right? <laughs> okay, let's back up a little bit. So your husband left you in the middle of parenting for little children no i suggested he leave because we were not managing these children this the as a team and i felt like he wasn't there for me and so we kept we tried counseling for three years and it just we never could be at the same place at the same time and i said you know what I'm ready just to try it this again. I want to be in the room with somebody that wants to be in the room with me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so I was ready to start over. I had We had a separation agreement in place. We had both started dating other people. I finally made the decision, told mom and dad, you know, this is what I think is best uh-huh. for me. And then just this fluke happened with the transverse myelitis. I mean, that's one in a million is, is the incident of that thing. The beauty in all of this is that Joe was there for me during this, and he has been to this day. So we we divorced. The divorce was final. Um, nine days later, I was paralyzed. I, I called him, and I said, look, something's happening to me. I can't move my legs. You know, I had a nanny at the time that took care of the children. I met him, met me at the hospital, and he would not leave my side for weeks and months. And even today, you know, he's remarried. They have a child. Our vacations are together. <laughs> you know, it's so. Like I said, but we have I have a close knit family. It's not the one exactly I am. Right? No but, kidding. But we just came back from our um, family annual trip to Cambridge, Maryland, where we all go. It's Joe and his wife and their child, and then 
my adult daughter and her husband and their child. And, <laughs> you know, it's this one big mixed up happy family that created through a lot of work and effort. It was particularly hard for me when Joe remarried just because I had hopes of remarrying of too. And then to see him be able to continue his life with this beautiful woman that there was a lot of anger there too. Mm. But I decided my kids had had enough. Right. And they needed for me to really try to make that relationship work. And, and I, they too have been inclusive. I mean, what second wife wants the first wife to yes, be exactly. so heavily involved, you know? But you didn't let that control you. Right. That's the difference. And, and she didn't either. You know, she Absolutely. was open to that. Um, and he too. I mean, what we were, I did a book club the other week and, and somebody was saying, now wait a minute. So Joe has his first and second wife in, on the same vacation. <laughs> I mean, he's a saint, right? That is, that is unique. That's for sure. How healthy is that for the rest of the family, for the kids? And that's awesome. Absolutely. You mentioned something and I'd like you to share this. How do you view hope? In all these circumstances that you went through, all these tragedies, what is your view of hope? I guess it's an emotion. It's a, it's a tricky thing because I think we all need hope, but hope can be haunting if we hope for the wrong things. If, if we really, you know, f- for example, you know, I, transverse myelitis, a, a third of the people that get transverse myelitis recover fully. A third recover partially, and a third don't recover at all. When I came home after six weeks in the hospital, I fully intended to recover and walk and and restore my life back to normal. But there was a chance I wouldn't. And so to every day I try to wiggle my my left toe. My left big toe was the last thing I could wiggle before everything stopped and I'm paralyzed from the waist down. Every day I would try to wiggle that toe, wiggle that toe. And, but what I realized after time, you know, months went by and it got to be a year and, you know, read all the research. The internet was in full force. Then you look at the research. It isn't looking good that I'm going to get anything back after a year. So that hope really had to be grounded with reality. I talk about this concept that one of my psychologists gave me about these parallel paths of hope and reality and that when you're not sure, am I going to recover or not, you can spend effort on both of those. On the hope path, I can try to wiggle my toe. I can try to, you know, eat, drink, have supplements and vitamins and, and do restorative therapies. But on the reality, you know, I might need to learn how to drive a car with my hands. <laughs> and I may need to put that elevator in the house, which I finally did after two, you know, a year and a half. They kind of ground each other, you know, the hope and the reality. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. In, in really, and it didn't dawn on me, you know, for a while, that's kind of the point of the title is to rethink what's possible. And when, you, when you're forced to accept a situation, you know, once you get those parameters, then you can rethink what's possible. And I think when you rethink what's possible, you've redefined your hope. Articles that I recently wrote, I quoted you, which should show you how much I respect you. (laughs) Thank you. And because not only do you have a phenomenal story, you are an awesome writer. And the article I wrote was about grief. And I quoted you regarding 
what grief means to you. And you said something, and you certainly have experienced enough of it, that made me think, and I know it will make our listeners and your readers think. And that was, you referred to grief as a strange companion. Can you talk about that a little bit? And then at the same time, share with us about your book. Through the years and the, the different losses, I uh, really come to, to find that grief is not this, it's not a formula. They're not these stages of grief that you go through that any kind of predictable pattern. It's more like the a presence, um, this companion that's with you that... You know, at the very beginning, they are beating you up. I mean, the grief is just like beating you down and making you sad, and 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 it really is a an unwanted companion. You just want it to stop. And mm-hmm. I think probably at the very beginning, you're so numb you don't even know you're in grief, and that definitely is a, is a blessing. That in that very, you just are doing the next thing, you're right? Just making the funeral plans and making sure this is happening, and then. And then you get through it, and then there's the the business of grief, you know, the paperwork that has to happen and the things you have to think about, whether it's selling your parents' house or retrofitting your house or kind of like the nuts and bolts. And then time passes, and you think you're doing all right, and then a butterfly comes along, and you know that that reminds you of your father, and you just – you lose it again. Uh And – or your favorite ice cream that – Somebody mentions a flavor that, I mean, who's heard of orange pineapple ice cream? Well, that was my dad's favorite. And so here comes that memory back at Myrtle Beach having an orange pineapple ice cream. And and then grief is just like tapping you on the shoulder. But, you know, I've learned to kind of just make a space for it um, beside me that's not in front of me and not in the center of my thinking, but but beside me and, and really respect that grief because it really reflects how deeply I've loved um, and and to respect it as a, as really a, a symbol of that. I don't think we ever get over, you know, these losses. I think, and I think there's a quote about that, at best we get through them um, and see what we can learn from them. But it's, it's just really a, a normal part of of loss, you know, getting through the grief. I think that's much healthier than what you said, where most people talk about the stages of grief. In other words, when you hit the final stage, then it should be over. It is never over. And Mm. I think that's perfect. It is a companion. That doesn't mean that it's with you 24-7, but it does rear its head at different triggers and those triggers and sometimes we recognize the triggers of course and sometimes we don't and it can be something even a smell of a cologne or any number of things and you think that you're you haven't graduated past that stage and I don't think that as you mentioned just now that has anything to do with it it's it's memories and what would we have if we didn't have those memories because with that grief also comes the warmth doesn't it but some of those, yes. some of those times, you know, remembering your dad or remembering your son or your brother, that doesn't take away the pain, and it certainly 
we shed a tear or whatever, but we can also smile through it. So it is much healthier than just thinking that when I get through the, you know, the anger stage and the denial, you know, all of those different stages. No, I don't think we ever arrive. You are absolutely right. And I think that was very beautifully put. And you said it is a presence that is always with you. So I, right. I really appreciate that. And do you share this in your book as well. Yes. Okay. And the name of your book again? It's Rethinking Possible. And um, it's funny when you, uh, it took me 20 years to write it. Life just kept happening <laughs> before I could get a perspective on it. But uh, when people ask me, so what is, your, what is your book about? It's really about living fully in the life you didn't plan. So it's been very interesting when I'll go to a group and I'll say, okay, question for you, everybody. Who is, is anybody living in the life they didn't plan? <laughs> of course, wow. everybody's hands go out, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, you're my people. So, right. you know, mine is more visible. I'm in a bright red shiny wheelchair that's, you know, and and it's obvious I have challenges, but I mean, it is amazing that these beautiful people have such deep challenges that just aren't as visible. It's it's incredible. And the community of people that are trying or struggling um, to live fully in that life that isn't planned is, is just huge. And they're receptive and sharing and and um, encouraging of one another. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to experience. But I wrote the book. Because I do believe life can be good no matter what. I do yes. believe that. I also wanted to share with my children what life has taught me. There are 26 chapters, but at the beginning of each of the chapters is a quote. I love quotes. That's uh, one of the things that I collect. And some of them are my father's. Some of them are mine. A lot of them are just everybody. You know, that Anybody that's made me stop and think and been a, a bit of encouragement, it starts with that quote and that usually kind of reflects what's going on in that chapter. That's, that's how it's structured. At the end, you know, I, I talk a lot about love and the power of love over loss. Um, and that's really how I try to live my life now is to let the love be larger than the circumstance, larger than the obstacle figure out a way to get through it. One of the things that is coming across loud and clear is that attitude. And, (laughs) you know, I mean, that is beautiful because you can talk about pity parties. I mean, look, not only what you've gone through, what are you, what you are continuing to endure. And here you are out encouraging other people, speaking, writing, sharing. It's remarkable. And you're the kind, you're a winner. You know, no matter what has happened, and you're a winner. And that's what's so exciting about this show is I've got winners on here. Yes. You, know, you know, they're not losers. They are winners. And essentially what makes you a winner in my viewpoint is because you want to help somebody else. And that is so evident. And so with your book and your columns and your encouraging words, and just the way you run your life. It's so evident. Now, tell us about your columns. Baltimore Sun published your first column about playing soccer with your son in a wheelchair. What happened? (laughs) Well, um, after I was paralyzed, that was 1997, 
that's just when the internet was starting and uh, a friend of mine set me up with email and I reconnected with a high school friend I hadn't seen in I don't know 10 or 15 years and he had read about my paralysis in a local newspaper and he said you know what happened you know what happened so I started telling him about it and it was so rare uh, that uh, he shared it with some of his friends you know when I would do escapades from the wheelchair what it was like to be paralyzed how my family life was you know it was just a really crazy time and plus I was a sales and marketing gal before that I was with IBM in sales and um, so I was out and about and I was really immobilized with this darn wheelchair so this became a way for me to connect with people through email and so they kept getting shared and shared and shared and this is before blogs this is before I mean I literally copied and pasted one email and found another email address and put it in another you know that's how I shared what I was going Mm -hmm. through and Mm -hmm. eventually it got to um, one of my church friends who was an editor at the Baltimore Sun and somebody said you know Becky you want to see if you could published this column about playing soccer with your son because he he was about four at that time maybe I guess five and he'd come home and he said mom I need to practice for soccer and I I was like how in the world am I supposed to you know help him with soccer because I can't even move my legs so anyway we figured out that the we had two garage doors and so I said you know what Peter I'm going to be the goalie so Uh let me like wheel back and forth and try to block your shots and this will be my goal and then I just for fun said you know the other side of the garage that'll be my goal for when I shoot and and it goes in which of course I could never do but what would happen was he would shoot and he'd score in his goal and then uh he would shoot and ricochet off my legs back to him and he'd accidentally score in my goal so we did have a little (laughs) bit of a competitive game there but uh so when I wrote about that um it was published in the Baltimore Sun, and it, you know, from there I was asked to do a local column and a weekly, uh, which was called "From Where I Sit." And again, slice of life, life stories, family life stories, and then that was uh, when my father died. He had a column in Huntington, West Virginia, called "Looking Homeward," so I took over writing that column for him. And then when Madison, my daughter. Do- daughter with autism became an adult the transition from school-based services to adult services is very tricky at least it still is but I started writing Tuesdays with Madison which was an online column that described what it was like for her to transition for these services so all of a sudden I was writing a lot Um, and I still have the the column I call it Thoughtful Thursdays, which is an email column I send out every Thursday that I'm hoping the people that are listening to this might sign up for because okay. it's uh, just a little little story, a snippet, a quote. I love my quotes about what's inspired me to stay positive that week. You know, just a little tiny um, snippet of something that's happened. That's because I have to work at it. It's not, of course. The attitude is is great, but it's like I have to look for the things yes. to, to keep me up. And I thought, well, if I'm going to find them, I might as well share them with everybody. That's right. That's right. That's <laughs> so, that comes back to attitude. <laughs> right. It, it, it's like almost everything. It, it requires effort. Well, that's a lot to swallow. Your story <laughs> and your attitude. 
No, which is awesome. I thank you so much, Becky, for everything that you shared and looking forward to getting connected with you as well. And I know my my uh, listeners will. All of that, of course, will be on the show notes and people will be able to connect with you, will be able to sign up for the uh, what, what you're offering, buy your book, listen to your interview again, and... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story, your, I want to say attitude again, for lack of a better word, but that's what I keep getting when I'm thinking about you, because that is what is making you come across as someone who is more than a survivor. You are, as somebody else put it, a sur thriver. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's like an overcomer, a thriver, yeah. and a survivor all rolled up into one. And you can still smile and laugh through all the pain, all the grief, and give us some understanding, give us some coping skills, and thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. It's just been an honor to be with you and be a part of what you're trying to to do here with the never give up hope. I mean, that that is so key uh, to living a full life is to find hope in what you're doing and the very circumstance that you are. It's not always easy, um, but it's certainly worth the effort. And I, what a what a great service you offer to all of us to remind us of that. Thank you. Thank you, Becky, and goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope. Featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.